This is Business of Home. I'm Dennis Scully, and welcome to the Thursday Show. Later on, I'll be talking to Anderson Somersell and Nancy Evers about breaking out of the traditional showroom model, and our own Caitlin Peterson about BOH's big fall issue. But first, we're going to catch up on the news, including some new developments with Mitchell Gold and Bob Williams, the acquisition of an iconic wallpaper brand, and a look at what's selling in the world of vintage furniture. To do all that, I'm joined by Business of Homes Executive Editor, Fred Nicholas. Hi, Fred. Hey, Dennis. How's it going? Great. How you doing? Doing good. You getting ready for uh, High Point Market? You got those comfy shoes on? <laughs> yes, indeed. I'm getting those Allbirds all ready to go because they <laughs> clock in a lot of miles. You're going to pack those green salads that I know you have a hard time uh, finding in the downtown High Point area? I am I am hoping to find healthy food all over the place, <laughs> but, uh, but we'll see. I'm thinking mostly pimento cheese is coming my way. <laughs> yeah, get your vegetables in through in cheese form. Always a good idea. Well, I'm sure we'll get a full report next week. Uh, but in the meantime, let's talk about Monday's episode, the uh, charming couple behind... Uh, Texas, and now New York's James Showroom. That was a fun one. That was a fun one. Hunter and Meredith Ellis, they are coming to New York. And one of the things that I love about their whole showroom model is it it seems like their brand's feel like they're part of the family. I saw so many posts about, mm. oh, you know, we're so excited the family's coming to New York and we'll all be there together. It's uh, It's got a really nice feel that way. Yeah, I, I loved it. I, well, certainly what stood out to me most was the fact that Hunter, before he got into the fabric showroom business, was a Navy pilot, which is uh, <laughs> certainly like a cool, a cool background for a showroom operator to have. I loved how he talked about how like, you know, standard operating procedure and a team that gels and is battle ready. It's kind of just a interesting, unique window to to bring to our industry. I thought that those kinds of insights were pretty fascinating and fun. I agree. And and Hunter doesn't know this, but I'm planning to spend a lot more time with him in the future understanding better what naval knowledge he has applied to our industry. <laughs> I can't wait to to learn more, but I was delighted to speak with them both. Well, I'm going to look forward to those insights uh, being brought to bear on the podcast. <laughs> Maybe our recording sessions will get done in less than an hour, but I won't, I won't hold my breath. Until then. <laughs> Until then, we'll try to bring some more efficiency to the Thursday show. But we're going to take a quick break, and we're going to come back with the news on the other side. Forehands is a leading source of design inspiration for interior designers, architects, retailers, and more. Forehands will introduce over 425 styles this fall for every room in the home. See their new collection plus top-selling pieces at their High Point Fall Market showroom from October 14th through the 18th. Follow them on Instagram at Forehands Furniture for daily design inspiration. Or visit forehands.com slash BOH to become a trade customer. That's F-O-U-R-H-A-N-D-S dot com slash BOH. Design Manager is the design industry's most reliable project management, purchasing, and accounting platform. The business of design is complex and requires solutions developed specifically for our industry. Design Manager has invested decades responding to the needs of interior design professionals and continues to deliver innovative tools to manage your business with efficiency and profitability in mind. Design Manager is excited to announce their completely reimagined platform with a fresh new look, refined tools and features, and enhanced solutions to keep your design business on track. 
Visit designmanager.com to schedule a demo of the tool trusted by the top interior design firms across the country. All right, we're back. Fred, a quick update on the Mitchell Gold and Bob Williams situation. Yes, well, we've been following the saga of the Mitchell Gold and Bob Williams collapse on the podcast here, and the story has just entered a a new chapter. On Friday, the judge overseeing the case converted it from a Chapter 11 case, which is sort of a restructuring bankruptcy, a.k.a. the good bankruptcy, uh, to Chapter 7, which is a liquidation bankruptcy, a.k.a. the bad bankruptcy, where assets are sort of quickly sold off uh, to pay back creditors uh, as expediently as possible. Um, what was your take on this, Dennis? Well, I, I felt like all the other documents that we were privy to suggested that people seem to be very far apart in their positions. And I and I wonder if that is part of what precipitated this decision by the judge. What do you what do you think? Yeah, I mean, I don't want to go uh, too far ahead of my skis here. I've been reading through the bankruptcy documents, and it's certainly a uh, a war and peace length <laughs> <laughs> treasure trove of information. But if you look at it, basically, the lawyers for Mitchell Golden Bob Williams and the bank, you know, who's sort of their chief antagonist and all of this, have just been filing motions back and forth, trying to figure out a plan of action. And you know, bankruptcy cases are kind of kind of weird because there's this fundamental antagonism to them, but both sides have to basically agree on a path forward if they're going to go ahead with Chapter 11. The bank basically has to agree to wait a little bit to get paid back, and it just seems like they really couldn't, and so this is getting pushed towards a, a more hasty sale. I wonder, what have we learned about what's likely to happen with a lot of the orders that I know were stuck in, in limbo out there? I know. One kind of strange thing about like watching this bankruptcy case proceed on the docket is that so many people are filing these claims saying, Mitchell Golden Bob Williams owes me two sofas, and where's my sofa? And you're just seeing dozens and dozens of them, and there's this long list of creditors that's hundreds of uh, items long. You know, In some of the court filings, uh, Mitchell Golden Bob Williams says that there's 6.5 $5 million worth of merchandise stuck uh, in third-party logistics facilities and $17 million in their own facilities. So there's a lot of furniture that's already made. Uh, the question is, who gets it? Uh, which is very much uh, an, an unanswered question. You know, I'm sure the bank wants it quickly sold so that they can get some of that cash. I'm sure the customers who place the orders want it delivered to them. The logistics firms want to be paid. And I think that's kind of the next chapter uh, in this case, uh, finding out what happens to all that furniture sitting in limbo. As we talked about in the past, the, the amount of money that was owed to the logistics company was was so large. There's more than one. There's many logistic companies. <laughs> yes, well, exactly. I'm just thinking their yeah. largest their largest creditor. I mean, it was almost four million dollars, if I recall. And and I, I I just I mean that that seems like a make or break amount for a, for a business. Yes, like that. yes. These situations are so heartbreaking because. Now he's speaking with a customer who said that their order was held up with one of these logistics providers and the logistics provider was trying to charge them like $2,000 to deliver the sofa. And this guy was irate because, of course, he had already paid Mitchell Gold, you know, to get the sofa delivered. But, of course, the logistics company is going to go under if they don't get this money. So it just, you know, these 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 collapses just create so many unfortunate situations. It's it's just so heartbreaking for everyone involved. You know, certainly there are not a lot of winners in this situation. And um it's it's very sad, and we'll just try and follow it closely and give uh, give uh, listeners as much information as we can. A- absolutely, stay tuned for for more developments. Let's move on to a happier acquisition story, <laughs> shall we, Fred? 
Yes, we do. We do need some good news. So a story about a company changing hands that isn't a disaster. We we reported yesterday that uh, French fabric house Pierre Frey has acquired Zubair, uh, a wallpaper manufacturer that's been in business since 1797. And Dennis, you actually uh, uncovered this gem for us. This is a little this was a little scully reporting. So all credit to you. Well, talk about a talk about a heritage brand, first of all. Right. 1797. <laughs> yes. And I have uh, I've I've rarely heard Patrick Frey sound as excited as he was when he called to uh, to tell me the news uh, of his acquisition of Zubair and it just it just makes sense on so many levels who better than Patrick Frey to look after your hundreds and hundreds of year old wallpaper company just as he acquired Rockinier and other companies that he's sort of rolling up into this I'll take care of your <laughs> yes. historic brand portfolio that he's developed uh, but it's uh, he's he's wildly excited about it and, and I can see why yeah, completely. Zubair is sort of an interesting company because, you know, you stop the average person on the street, they're not going to know the name Zubair, right? But if but if you know about wallpaper and the history of wallpaper, it's just such such an important company. Uh, you know, as, as we've said, it's been in business for over 200 years. You know, they still make the wallpaper now with some of the very same blocks that they used 200 years ago. They've got this big catacomb underneath their factory where they're all stored. It's this company with this, with this incredible history. Um, but I think, you know, much like uh, Lisa Montague of Sanderson talked about, you know, sometimes a heritage brand is just old. And I think that that is very true of Zubair. You know, they uh, Patrick was telling me uh, for in the interview we did for this piece that at the beginning of the 20th century, they had like 200 people working there. And now they have 19 or something like that. So this this is a brand that needs uh, a, a fresh injection of, of capital and some tender love and care. Uh, but there's just uh, en- endless amounts of history to tap into, for sure. Exactly, and and you you reference Lisa Montague and and her working to recolor and revitalize, and and what gets Patrick Frey so excited about a company like this is this vast archive and and all of this history and so for him there's just there's just so much to look at and go through and and to play with and that's and 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 to to reinvent to to reissue and and so there's there's just so much to to play with and and i i think that's part of what he's so excited about and and rightfully so Oh, yeah, completely. I mean, there's just, you know, thousands and thousands of documents in their archives. You know, one thing he made clear to me, though, you know, there's like different kinds of, you know, revitalizing heritage brand. You know, I I don't think he's going to get Shay McGee to recolor any Zubair papers. <laughs> I think I think the history aspect of it is sort of more important in, in, in the case of Zubair. And I don't think that they're going to he's going to try not to change too much. He made it clear to me. I think at the beginning, a lot of it will simply be about you know, getting this company into more showrooms in America or more accessible to more American designers, just sort of, you know, finessing the financial side of the business before he makes any aesthetic changes. Because I, I do think it's a little bit more of this rarefied uh, brand that you want to be a little more careful about making too many changes on. But but certainly there's there's so much to draw on uh, here. And I, he's 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 very very excited. It was clear he bought the bought the business partially for financial reasons, but partially just to sort of preserve the legacy of this incredible French company. You know, couldn't agree more. That that archive is in loving hands <laughs> with uh, with Patrick Frey, to be sure. 
Okay, uh, moving on to taking a look at what's hot in the world of vintage furniture. So, Kayo, the furniture resale site, released its yearly trend report documenting what's flying off of digital shelves. There were many revelations. I wonder what jumped out at you the most, Fred, and <laughs> all we've learned. Yes. Well, I, I just want to toss a caveat in here is that, you know, companies tend to release these, you know, yearly reports and, you know, generally speaking, like furniture resale sites tend to find that furniture resale is great. Like that, that's generally <laughs> the takeaway from these kinds of reports. But this one in particular had some fun, fun takeaways that they pulled from their sales data. One of the things I loved was just seeing, you know, we often have talked about microtrends on this show and, you are a noted microtrend skeptic, but if, if, if you, if Kayo's data is to be believed, when something like Tomato Girl Summer takes off or Quiet Luxury goes off, that yields an incredible surge in uh, search traffic on their site. You know, the, the, the funniest one I thought was apparently there was something called Mermaid Core, which I had never heard of, <laughs> but it led to a 219% increase in searches for scalloped. So that was a, a personal favorite, a little highlight from this data. How about you? Yeah, no, obviously Mermaid Core is, is big. The, the, <laughs> the, kid, the kids are loving it. As you say, the the, the micro trend aspect of this, I I loved seeing that boucle searches <laughs> increased by one hundred and seventy seven percent. I uh, I I think the word is is out that uh, that they've got to they've got to clear out the boucle. But I I thought what was interesting too was seeing West Elm actually, if I understood their report, held its value the best in in resale. Yeah, <laughs> we used to talk about West Elm and CB two as the fast fashion equivalent of furniture, and so mm. it's interesting for me to see that these brands are holding up well enough to be leading their resale effort. Yeah, that was interesting. Uh, you know, it's one thing we should, you know, explain too is that Kayo is, you know, first dibs and cherish kind of tackle more of the high end. Kayo's kind of in the middle of the market. So they're not, you know, doing a lot of resale of, you know, your, uh, your high end designer brands. <laughs> um, you know, it, it's difficult for me to venture too much of a guess about which pieces actually do hold up and, you know, how long these pieces have actually been in circulation, whether this is reselling something that the customer bought six months ago or whether it was six years ago. You know, it's possible that Kayo is just targeted at a segment of the market that's sort of like younger millennials and older Gen Z people just moving from apartment to apartment. And and so there's a lot in the data that we're not seeing in this report. But I do think that like West Elm has probably gone up a little bit up market in, in the past uh, 10 years or so. And I think that CB2 certainly has. And uh, it's possible that when we talk about fast furniture, we're really talking about Ikea or, you know, Wayfair type brands and these sort of life consumer lifestyle brands have uh, have gotten better and are making more durable goods. I don't know. I'd be curious to hear from someone who was uh, really on the inside and could could share some insight there. No, I, I agree. I mean, recently I shared that I was in the CB2 location by the D&D building, which has undergone this huge transformation and, and really looked pretty impressive, to be honest. Uh, but what was interesting is several designers reached out to me, and, and the first thing they said was, you can't believe the quality level. Yeah, and I thought, yeah. and I thought, what? Uh, so <laughs> I mean, so I thought that was so interesting because, again, that's not necessarily what's top of mind when we talk about 
about those those brands. So to your point, maybe maybe they just have gotten a lot better, and that's encouraging to me because honestly, this whole furniture resale space is so encouraging to me. I I saw they had a piece that now this was a piece that was about two thousand dollars. It was a previously owned Avery Boardman sofa, and having worked for Avery Boardman for a long time, I <laughs> I know that piece is is made like a tank and can be reupholstered and and repurposed and so i was thrilled to see that kind of piece on there because i think that's the very kind of furniture piece that can be passed down for another generation and fun to think that maybe some of these other uh, less expensive furniture lines can be can be passed on as well yeah, maybe this is just about the sort of stratification of the market, you know, as competitors like Wayfair have come in and become so huge, I feel like people feel like they can't compete down there at the bottom of the market, so you have to go up, you know, it's it's uh, maybe all the lifestyle brands that we've been talking about that were once perceived as fast fashion have just realized there's there's no money in it anymore, they need to try and crawl up that luxury mountain behind, uh, behind, <laughs> mis- behind Mr. Friedman. All right, moving on. A little bit of a heavier subject now. Uh, <laughs> the end of culture. <laughs> <laughs> Wait a sec. Has culture stopped moving forward? So this week there was a piece in the New York Times by Jason Farrago arguing that we've arrived at a cultural standstill and that the 21st century so far is the least innovative, least transformative, least pioneering century for culture since the invention of the printing press. So, I mean, start with that, Fred. Where do we where do we go? Well, first of all, I'm often accused of writing these unreadable, really long articles for Business of Home. So I was really encouraged to see that there's someone at the New York he, Times who's writing even longer articles. He had you beat. He had you beat. <laughs> yes. No, but it, th- this was kind of a, a fascinating look at, at why it seems to be that so much of the culture that we're producing now just seems like regurgitated versions of, of uh, prior decades. You know, this was a very broad angle piece. He was talking about music and art and, you know, there were a couple of glancing mentions of, of furniture as well. But I do think that this is something that I hear from designers and people in our industry talking about how everything is just a recycled version of something that came before. And, you know, uh, in, in, his, in the piece, I think he sort of places the blame largely on, surprise, surprise, the Internet, how everything gets sort of flattened to our screens. Everything is absent of context. It's all just a little window floating by. And so we lose our sense of where things come from and we just are kind of lost in this sort of cultural stew but uh, I don't know did you did you make it all the way to the end of the article Dennis I only gave you I only gave you six hours to read it so <laughs> well that was the thing I needed way more time but but there was a moment I mean to your point there was a moment where he in the piece he he writes have you have you tried to furnish an apartment lately whether you're at restoration hardware or on Alibaba you are probably buying replicas of European antiques contemporary design first seen in Milan in the 70s or Weimar in the 20s. And and I think that so much of what he was saying was, yes, it, none of it seems new or inspired. It was... It was interesting because I'm I'm talking with a with a designer for for an interview that that's coming up that was part of the original team of Diamond and Barada and that that's one of the few firms that I can really call to mind that was doing such completely different work than everybody else in mm. terms of color in terms of design and pattern and and for a time Bill Diamond he 
he would live in practically an empty apartment, literally with just a mattress and a television in his apartment, because he just didn't want to be distracted from anything else, anybody else's color sense, anybody else's furniture designs. He just wanted to be able to see his own visions. And I feel like, who are those people to today? <laughs> It's funny that you should uh, sort of hold him up as a paragon of culture for living in an empty room with a mattress and a TV. I feel like that's sort of like the average 25-year-old guy on Tinder is probably probably fits that profile pretty pretty closely. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I don't know. I think it's, it's difficult, too, because when I read an article like this, part of me thinks, same as it ever was. Everyone complains about, oh, we're living in a cultural swamp and... You know, you, you look back a hundred years and people living in, you know, what we would consider one of the most fertile artistic times and people complain about how there's nothing good going on. So I do wonder if there's an element of, of, of that here. But I do think there's just something undeniable about the way the Internet has changed cultural consumption. You know, my my wife is a high school teacher and she asks her students, like, can you think of music that was made in the 60s and what? The answers they give, they give are just shockingly void of an understanding of history. It's like Frank Sinatra, Nirvana, like it's like it's, <laughs> it's so all over the place. And I think huh. it's just because young people consume culture so differently than than people who were born before that internet divide did. And I think you know in the past, design firms you know are celebrated for their really you know clear understanding of you know the the progression of culture through the 20th century and what furniture corresponded to which era and you know a lot of understanding of art history and all of that is incredibly valuable and impressive to me but i do wonder if the next generation of clients are going to be more just hey make a cool vibe and not so much care that you know the, the designer understands the historical reference because the historical references might not mean as much to people in uh, 20 years i don't know it's uh something something to something to chew on Indeed, and it's a it's a really interesting article, and and we'd love to hear people's feedback about it because it uh, <laughs> has culture stopped or not. <laughs> Colin, now <laughs> up or down, up or down <laughs> on culture not moving forward. All right, that's it for the news. But there's plenty more to check out on businessofhome.com, including a look at the return of Wisteria and our designer's guide to High Point Market. We're going to get to my discussion with Caitlin in just a minute, but first, a quick break. Forehand's newest collection of home furnishings and decor debuts this month, including antique-inspired pieces with hand-applied finishes from the makers at Van Thiel, and a new collection from Thomas Bina and Ronald Sasson, featuring specially crafted, hand-selected materials. Join the Forehand's trade program to shop these collections and more. There's never an order minimum, and you'll enjoy bigger discounts the more you spend. Visit forehands.com boh. That's F-O-U-R-H-A-N-D-S dot com slash B-O-H. All right, we're back. We've got a special guest on the show today, Business of Homes Editor-in-Chief Caitlin Peterson, here to talk about the latest print issue of B-O-H magazine. Caitlin, welcome. Thank you, Dennis. It's great to be back. So delighted to have you back. It's been a while. So the big technology issue is coming out, Caitlin. What can you tell us? Well, technology is a topic that throughout BOH Magazine's history, we've revisited a few times. When the magazine was about a year old uh, in 2017, there was a technology issue. We revisited it again in 2020 in the fall. Um, and 
it seemed like that every three years cadence felt like a really good time to check back in and take the temperature on how technology is shaping the way that industry is working today. And I think it really is sort of a fun way to trace the arc of how we've all adapted to tech in our lives, a good way to see how what we're worrying about has evolved. Um, and I'm really <laughs> yes, excited. Yes, I love how, no, I mean, I love how in your edit letter you hold up. So here's what we were worried about six years ago. Mm -hmm. Didn't really pan out. Yeah, it didn't, right? didn't come to pass. Yeah. I mean, but also you wrote an amazing piece six years ago in sort of a fun, prescient way about the rise of design podcasts. Little <laughs> did we know that a short time later. Exactly. Your show, this amazing show would be born. Right. So all of that did happen. Yes. Yes. So that one did come to pass. I feel good about that. <laughs> You know, things like um, Modsy, you know, as right. this, you know, upstart that was going to shake up the industry. And obviously, in the last year, we've seen that that technology is, yes, still at play, but being used in a really different, like, not threatening way. I think that's a really nice thing about kind of coming back to a topic again and again, and a topic that changes so fast, is that it really is a good way to dip in and say, okay, here's what here's what matters now. Here's the conversations we should be having now. And I think I walked away from this technology issue thinking I don't have this sense of like existential fear that some mm. of this technology coming down, you know, the pipeline is going to be a replacement for the really human, really um, important emotional, psychological and physical work that designers do to pull a project across the finish line. Yeah. And, and I felt like you did. I felt like you did such a great job of articulating that message in your in your edit letter. And, oh, and that you. really... Yeah, I mean, it really turns out that oh no, it, it's it's all about designers and people and and what they bring, and uh, and and so I think a lot of the fear removal from all of this is actually very helpful. And and with that, with that fear taken away, oh look, like there's AI. just opportunity, exactly. Yeah. You know, so there's a big AI piece in 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 the magazine, and it talks about listen, we we thought all these other things were going to be important. This actually really does look like it's going to be important and significant and stay around. Actually, the AI piece is one of my favorites in the issue because I think Fred wrote it and he does a really great job. You know, he's done, I think, the best AI reporting in the industry, you know, in the past year or two, really charting what AI is going to mean for the design world. And in this story, he breaks down the impact of AI on the industry, but he broke it into the good, the bad, and the weird. And I think that that's actually another good example of being able to kind of step back, laugh at ourselves and say like, some of this stuff is just bizarre. Some of it is stuff that we're still sort of wading through that we're going to have to wait to see how it settles. And in the meantime, huh, that's kind of funny. Um, <laughs> you know, there's a, there's a great example of... Um, Jim Cappuccino is a designer in Boston, and he got a call from, you know, a, a client inquiry who, you know, he asked the question, oh, how did you hear about us? And the client said, oh, I asked ChatGPT who the best interior designers in Boston were. Um, <laughs> is that going to become a designer's number one source of lead generation? Like, probably not. But it's really interesting. It's kind of a fun wrinkle in... AI as a whole kind of ironing itself out as a useful tool too. And so I think being able to look at, again, you know, you can do these things. These things are sort of threats or negatives or downsides. And look at this funny stuff that's going to happen along the way. 
and we're all along for the ride and let's just talk about it. I think that's great. Well, exactly. L- look look at how we got all worked up about <laughs> <Right>. very, various <laughs> trends that came along and then l- look how much they're they're, they're not a- around even t- today. I mean, right. when, we look, when we look at so many of the things that we were all worried about. Fred also wrote the, his long-awaited piece on digital printing. Yes, I know uh, that's been teased on this show a bit, yes. and um, we've it's talked great. about it a great deal. And it finally yeah. it has arrived in this issue, and it's yeah, it's a great it's a great piece that actually tells you what has gotten meaningfully better about totally. that, right? And and so, well, and I think that's actually a really good example of yeah, technological innovation proving to to create a lot of opportunity. Yeah. Um, I remember going to. Heim Textile, the textiles show yes. in Frankfurt in, I think it was six years ago, you know, and they had this hall of people selling really giant digital printers and they were sort of relegated off to the side. A lot of the vendors were like, oh, like that, like you walked through there. <laughs> um, and, it, you know, even just sort of that industry attitude of like, oh, those people selling technology over there, like, <laughs> you know, take it or leave it. Yes. Um, and, and, you know, based on Fred's piece about where digital printing was even, you know, five or six years ago, maybe that attitude was pretty warranted. And maybe there wasn't sort of the sophistication to keep pace with what more traditional manufacturers were doing. And so sort of seeing how those attitudes have shifted, you know, even within the industry and people getting excited about the opportunities there. I thought that was a really cool a cool piece, uh, a cool part of that piece. I, I agree. There, there's there's a lot of opportunity there, and it's really interesting to see how far it's come. So I don't want to give away the whole issue, <laughs> um, but there's but there's also a great piece on breaking down the Instagram algorithms, and and turns out you know it's perhaps not as complicated uh, as we thought, and there are some things that you can do, right? Caroline Burke is our assistant editor. She's been writing a column called Ask an Influencer for the site, and she's sort of become our uh, in-house expert on all things, you know, Instagram and TikTok and social media, um, really asking designers, but also design content creators, how they strategize, how they're using social to move the needle for their business. And so she went out to really ask people, you know, is the algorithm all that mysterious? And the answers were a lot more clear cut than I certainly expected. It was Mm. like, do this, not that. Like, think about it this way, not that way. And I think for me, the takeaway from that article was that just, you know, a few perspective shifts on how you approach your social media, how you approach changes to the platform um, can make a lot of difference, you know, in in improving your firm's experience with social media as a phenomenon. (laughs) And that it doesn't have to be this crazy, mysterious, negative thing. I do think that one of the takeaways from that piece is that you can't approach social media with this idea that, you know, I want to do this the way I've always done it, which actually is true for this entire technology issue as a whole, right? When we exactly get stuck in, okay, this is how I do it, or this yeah. is my process and the universe needs to bend to the way that <laughs> I've found to do things. Obviously that doesn't work for anything, but I think technology sometimes makes us dig, dig our heels in and, and feel that way about all of our processes. And I think social media is a place where that's very true. You lock into a content strategy, it's working, you have all that positive feedback, and then the app changes and you have to adapt to. And so I think what it boils down to is a lot of the creators that Caroline talked to were able to offer ways to reframe how you think about creating content, to 
like free you up to to have that flexibility to keep up with the app's changes feel less onerous. And so I think that's a really exciting uh, toolkit to offer is to say, you know, here's a different way to think about this. Here's a different way to approach telling your stories. And it doesn't have to turn everything you're doing on its head. Like you just have to think about it a little bit differently. And you can find whatever version of success on social media that you're looking for. Because I think that's the other thing, right? Everyone's not out there to be the next TikTok star, but maybe you do want sort of a steady hum of likes and mentions and follows to stay noticed by the press, to keep client inquiries coming in. You can build a strategy that's flexible no matter what your goals are. Yeah, no, 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 I, I completely agree. And and I think so much of the message of this entire issue, to your point, is about adaptation, is about recognizing this right. technology right, is coming along and yes, it's going to show up in your world in some way. And I think, I think the point that, again, you made in your edit letter that I think is so important is that at the end of the day, the industry as a whole is still just grappling with the internet for mm -hmm. goodness sakes, right? It's really, it's been so disrupted by the internet in just so yeah. many ways. And we're still adapting to that. It's funny. I was asked that question probably three years ago now by a candidate who was interviewing to be our editorial assistant. And one candidate asked me, well, you know, you report on the home industry. What's the what's the industry's biggest challenge? And I was quiet for a minute. And I was finally like, well, the internet. Um, and we had a really interesting conversation where I sort of broadly explained the mechanics yeah. of why. Um, but that exchange has stuck with me for a very long time. And the fact that so much of the business challenges, the billing challenges, the pro bringing product to market challenges really is about a really traditional business model, not having quite found its footing with the added transparency and transactability that the internet brought to us. I don't know that we solve that problem in the issue, but it certainly is sort of a- We a, can't you know, promise you that with this issue. <laughs> We've solved the internet, guys. Um, I do think though, you know, you were talking about that that slow burn of you know technological innovation, of technological adoption. Yeah. And I want to shout out another piece that's in the issue, which was written by our articles editor, Hannah Hickok. One piece we didn't want to leave out of this issue is a deep dive into smart home technology, which I think hmm. can sometimes make your eyes glaze over. You're like, oh, yeah, the automated home, whatever. Um, <laughs> so often those products you know, require a lot of foresight. They require some additional expense. They require a lot of extra planning. And they require designers to be experts in the technicalities of the product in a way that sort of goes beyond maybe what you would normally specify. And so she kind of went category by category, whether it's air quality or, you know, window treatment solutions or lighting, appliances, security, and, you know, really quickly offers an explanation of here's where the technology is now. Here's what the opportunities are that are available for you. Here's how you can talk about it with your clients. Here's what the known drawbacks are, or here's where we're still evolving in this space. And, you know, gives kind of this like tightly edited snapshot of where each category is. Less saying, you know, buy this home security system for your client and more big picture, like here's where we're at. You know, it's a little bit less, how can technology work for your business? Um, and a little bit more, how can you harness technology to improve your clients' lives? Um, but I think it was a really beautiful, you know, fit within sort of the overall story that we were telling. Okay, let's tell people, now that we've got them so excited to read this upcoming issue, let's tell people how they get their hands on it. 
If you are a BOH insider or a magazine subscriber, it's going to be in your mailbox if it's not already in the next week. It is dropping online today if you're listening on Thursday. <laughs> um, and you can just go to businessofhome.com slash magazine. All of that content for now will be reserved for subscribers, but you can subscribe on that page. Fantastic. And before I let you go, speaking of being a BOH insider, we have another fun element to being a BOH insider, field trips. Yes. We've, right? You've got the first one coming up. Tell us about it. One of the one of the things we've been looking to do is turn the BOH insider community, which is an incredible digital community, into a place that also offers opportunities for in-person connection. And so we've launched this program called Field Trips, where we're going to be um, giving insider access um, to incredible workshops, studio tours, um, just allowing that connection to bubble into real life, also to you know, allow designers to get together and discover something new, do a craft, explore something behind the scenes that they might not have had access to otherwise. Our first field trip is in New York. It's on November 2nd, and it's a decorative painting and faux finishing workshop at the Isabel O'Neill studio. Um, so we're going to be in the workshop with these incredible artisans who are just hand painting the most exquisite things you've ever seen in your life. And then we'll be getting um, instruction on how to do uh, hand painted malachite finishes ourselves with a little with a little object to take home. The other fun part is that it's kind of bookended by a lunch. So not only are we going to all learn something together, take in this amazing experience, um, we can all then go like have a glass of wine and chat about it afterwards. So just another way to make new industry friends, make new industry connections, and just kind of keep talking in person together. And it's something that we hope to keep going. You know, we've got a couple more coming up that will be announced soon on the calendar. Uh, we'll be taking it out of New York and over to LA and other major markets in the coming months. And it should be just a really exciting addition to the insider community. All right. Well, another fun reason to become a BOH insider, it sounds like. Absolutely. Field trips and wine afterwards. Who who doesn't want to <laughs> sign up for that? I'm, I want to go myself. Uh, Caitlin, Thank you so much for making the time to talk with us. I'm, I'm delighted to have a chance to speak with you. Absolutely. Thanks for having me, Dennis. It's always good to talk to you. Yeah, it's a pleasure. All right. We're going to get to my conversation with Anderson and Nancy in just a moment. But first, a quick break. In interior design, every detail counts. Need a solution to streamline your process without compromising quality? Enter Design Manager. Their software, used by thousands of growing interior design firms, integrates project management, purchasing, and accounting effortlessly. And exciting news! They've just launched a revamped platform with refined tools tailored for designers. Elevate your design business with Design Manager. Visit designmanager.com for a demo and discover why leading design firms trust them. Okay, I've got two guests joining me today. First up is Nancy Evers. Nancy is the founder and CEO of Evers Collective, and we'll explain for listeners what Evers Collective is in just a moment. Also joining me is Anderson Somersell. He is the founder and CEO of Somersell. Thank you both so much for being here. I'm, I'm thrilled to get to talk to you. Been eager to speak with both of you for some time, together, in fact, because both of you are coming into a traditional multi-line showroom world 
old and trying to do something perhaps a little different with each of your businesses, both of you having been in and around multi-line showrooms and and Nancy, you were in the design industry uh, for some mm-hmm. time. So so may I start with you, Nancy, and, and just sure. have you briefly explain to us the idea behind Evers Collective and a little bit of what brought you to this. Sure. Yep. Thanks for having me, uh, Dennis. I'm a Delighted. huge fan of the podcast, so I'm honored to be on. Um, and here with my friend Anderson, who, funny enough, we discovered each other as we were both opening up our own showrooms about three years ago. So um, just kind of discovered each other on Instagram, and then we become fast friends and just sort of a touch point for each other as we both navigate this newish world for us. Just last week, you were talking about second acts, and this is certainly my second act. I was um, getting ready to turn 50 and had a successful interior design firm for 10 years with a business partner, and then five years by myself before that. And then the pandemic hit. And as many people were doing, assessing life and business and uh, looking for pivots, and I just felt really strongly about going out on my own and starting something hopefully new and or taking a model that had obviously been established for so long and maybe looking at it a different way from an interior designer's perspective. So what I was looking for from multi-line showrooms, what I thought might be lacking and where I could um, fill that need. So I sort of based my new business model around that. And and exactly, tell people exactly what the business is. So it is a multi-line showroom, but it's small artisanal boutique lines, most of them female. And so it has turned into sort of like a female artisanal collective. Um, and so we have everything from textile to wallpaper to lighting, rugs, and an upholstery line. And um, I'm based in San Carlos, California. So I represent lines throughout the Bay Area. And then earlier this year, opened a satellite showroom in, um, in San Francisco. Got it. Okay. So Anderson, you were working for several very well-known multi-line showrooms earlier in your career and, and felt that there was an opportunity for perhaps a different kind of model or better better types of uh, data and service. Tell me, tell me what led you and, and, and what, what is this business that you run today? So when I launched Summercell, the void I was trying to fill was there was an opportunity for this model to be a little bit more refreshed and brought into the digital era. And the reason why I wanted to do that was the efficiency. Uh, interior designers, the way that the the model was constructed made it very inefficient for an interior designer. You've got to call your rep, you got to call, then you got to, you got to go to the showroom to see what the showroom has and so on and so forth. When I thought there was a great opportunity for us to have it online for designers who are sourcing, beginning the sourcing process online and making it easier for them to request their samples, place an order if they would like to, and then from that, on the back end of it, there was a huge opportunity to collect data that we could use to better inform the brands that we represented. On the, the smallest level, how do you color your collections? What's, pop, what's the popular colorways or what's your most successful pattern? Uh, a lot of showrooms on the back end didn't have that data. So I, I felt mm-hmm. the need to create something that 
could fulfill that. And when you talk about Summer Cell, do you describe it as a, a, an online showroom or how do you articulate exactly what it is? So at first when we launched, it was a virtual showroom and we've expanded that to now being just a digital resource for interior designers because I think that's the evolution of multi-line showrooms of the future. When you were working in, in multi-line showrooms in the D&D building and uh, there wasn't a lot of data being captured to your point where, right, and you're shaking your head. So nope. <laughs> what, uh, but the data that you were imagining, Anderson, that you could capture and that would be valuable. What, what, what did you think that was? Well, for me, it was being able to intelligently answer the textile designers' questions when it came to, what, what do you think is my most sampled uh, pattern? Or what do you think is the most sample colorway of something? And we simply didn't have the, da the data to, to answer those questions. And me being a textile manager at some of these brands, I felt kind of silly in a meeting doing that. And then also too, when you're representing all these artisanal brands or any, any brand really, they would like to know who has their sample or what office did you call upon or who's looking at my, my line. Um, so what we did at Summercell was we wanted to make sure that we can capture that data. One of the things that we focused on at the start was I wanted a way to inventory our samples for the sake of ease so we weren't spending so much time manually doing that and then also being able to give our brands that we represent a report i think we do it uh every two months we send out a report to our the brands that we represent on who requested their sample and it's very surface level it's very like this person requested this sample that's it. But from that internally, we can do so much more with the data that we've gathered from, from that. Historically, when we talk about multi-line showrooms, the issues that come up are rents got very high, mm -hmm. then the multi-line showrooms in an effort to, to try and offset some of that high rent began to increase in many markets how much of a percentage they they took from from sales so in in some showrooms let's call it 30% just to use as a number right so so 30 30% of the of the sale would go to the multi-line showroom that was that was challenging particularly for smaller companies that might be less established in the marketplace right so that's that's why it was hard to bring some of those smaller lines so smaller collections on board and then to the point we've just been making, you're a multi-line showroom. You also, uh, you, you have to hire a staff. You have to be able to right, manage however many people. You bring on more lines. You need more people. you got the traffic you assume you're dealing with. And we assume you're also having outside salespeople. And then, of course, there's also the territorial issue as well. And you can only sell to this particular slice of the market. And oh, by the way, you don't want the line that you're representing to be selling directly. And uh, and so that becomes an issue as well. I didn't even include that sometimes the multi-line showroom has its own lines or house brands versus other people's brands and, and, what, and what that also creates. So Anderson, let, let's just go one by one <laughs> on, uh, on, on how you imagined addressing each of those issues with, with what you were building. 
Well, we started with the traditional agreements. So it is the brands that we represent, we have the right, we have the uh, exclusivity for the tri-state area and um, including Philadelphia. So we started with that model being a virtual showroom, not the fact that we're not the fact that we're just a virtual showroom. It's it's more so the fact that we the way that we do our marketing, we we are pretty great at doing our marketing. And what has ended up happening is that other designers outside of our territory have discovered us and discovered brands through us. So we've spent the last three years I've spent personally in trouble with other people <laughs> because of these territory agreements and we're respectful of them but you know as time has gone by and we have spent a lot of time and money and understanding our design understanding our designers understanding our audience as i like to call them our audience and when it comes to our marketing i've sort of said if someone discovers your brand based off of Somersell's influence, Somersell is entitled to a portion of that sale if that's, if a sale is made. The reason being, because typically uh, the designer will discover us, they will go onto our website, they will create an account, and then they will request a sample. It takes more time for my team and the sample department to filter through those, so we send the sample any which way. Typically, because designers are on there and they're very specific with how they request their samples, which is another great benefit to our model. Everybody said to me at the beginning that you're going to be sending out thousands of samples. Designers are really good at self-regulating themselves and they're very specific with what they, they request. So typically those things that they request turn into orders. And then that's when we have to talk about the territory agreements. Okay, being a virtual showroom, you just mentioned marketing. Do do your marketing expenses equate to what you imagine a, a, a rent would have been, or are, are do you feel that you've got this lower cost model because you are virtual? I have a lower cost model because I'm virtual because I don't have a I essentially only for the rent of our office. I don't have an, a big rent to cover. So a lot of that, what would have been that expense goes, can go into our, our marketing. And with, with the other issues that I mentioned, so the, the commission structure or some of the other issues, I mean, what shows up the most for you in all of the different challenges that I outlined with the multi-line model and that you're, that you're trying to address or that you realize perhaps can't properly be addressed or fixed easily. The only the only thing that shows up the most for for us is the territory. That, you know, the fact that we can afford to and understand how to do digital marketing, uh, not only digital marketing, we do some physical marketing as well. We run into that a lot. However, our commission, yes, our commission take is a little bit lower. Mm. I just started, I, I'm sure Somersault, we can command much more. Uh, and I'll talk about the future of that because we, me and Nancy have been talking about that quite a bit. So our commission take is a lot less um, because 
on your marketing clients? On, not on my marketing, on our on the brands that we represent. The commission you take on the on the lines yeah. that you represent. So yeah, yeah, that's a little bit lower because again, we don't have a physical right. space. However, it's beneficial for smaller brands because they don't have to do such a big upfront cost. Like they don't need to supply us with these giant wings or wings of every colorway, or they just need to give us a little road kit that our reps can take out that I can take out um, and they're sampling. The biggest cost for brands that we represent are, is sampling. But can we take a bigger commission? We could because we do a lot more, I feel, than the traditional showroom because we are able to do more because we don't have that heavy expense because I didn't, don't also need to staff a showroom. I've got a staff that is my videographer for the content that we produce for our, our brands. Uh, and we do a lot of brand specific uh, marketing. So we would, for example, there are a lot of videos that we do in partnership with our brands that we represent that we put out into the world that other reps have shared. <laughs> Because <laughs> um, uh, we will give. And how do you feel about that? How oh. do you feel about your, uh, your content just being oh, put out there? I'm going to. Well, the content's so good. I'm right. going to be pleasant right. about it here, Dennis. <laughs> Listen. Yeah. This is it's a it's it's a conflict for me because on the business end, I see I sign the checks that go out for that, but at the core of who I am and what I really care about, I care about interior designers. So mm. if an interior designer can discover a brand that we represent that then makes them be able to put something special in their client's project, I'm very grateful for that. The businessman part of me is like, wait a minute here, hold on, let's talk about this. Um, but there's really nothing I can do about that. Nancy, coming back to you, you mentioned Listen, you started your business during COVID, learned all these things. Mm -hmm. I'm assuming you had uh, certain ideas in your head of, of what was the best thing to do at the time. You shifted market mm -hmm. forces, right? Made you, yeah. made you pivot a little, a little bit uh, as, as, one, as one does. When one that is an entrepreneur, you got to go with uh, whatever's in front of you at the moment. That's right. Right. So, so looking back... If you had been building what today would be the perfect model, the perfect mix of everything mm -hmm. we've just been talking about, what would that look like? And are, is that what you're trying to move towards today? I believe so. I think I'm still trying to figure it out to some degree. I think what in my mind, when I decide to open a showroom and what I thought, similar to what Anderson said, right? And so the creative piece of me sometimes is that battle with the, uh, with the business owner piece of me and like what I want to offer and serve designers, you know, I'm going to be completely blunt and honest. I haven't paid myself um, since I started the company, right? I, I pay the people who work for me, but I'm not there yet because a lot of what I do, I fund. And, right. um, and it's part, partly because, you know, we work off a of commission. I mean, I don't have money coming in unless I sell something. There's no, you know, the lines aren't paying me uh, mm -hmm. a, a monthly fee to be part of my collective, you know? I mean, is that, Anderson and I have talked about, is that the future of multi-line showrooms? I don't, we don't know yet. I mean, I'm saying that partly because we do so much work 
to market these lines and and a lot of them do their own marketing a lot of them don't right so we are we are we are out there hustling so i think in hindsight i still i still think that this model that we're working off of works i think it needs to be tweaked a little bit and maybe just some support up front for us showrooms especially the ones that are supporting these smaller artisanal lines and um we're not those big multi-line showrooms with those big anchor brands and um you know for us it it has to be about volume and so that's why we're out there pounding the pavement i don't think a lot of people understand that the multi-line showroom like us that just represents artisanal brands a lot of that is funded off of us it's our money that we're putting up front to create the showroom or whatever the experience is. And then also too, not only that, it's a lot of it is based off of our influence. You know, Nancy and I are pretty well involved in our industries, respectfully. We, we attend things, we go to dinners, we go to galas, we go to, we're constantly having lunches and whatever with editors. All of that costs money and talk about not paying yourself. You know, both of us are three years in. God, I would love, I would love when I'm signing paychecks for the team to like <laughs> have an Anderson Somersault paycheck. That'd be fantastic. <laughs> but, yeah. you know, when we take on a brand, there's a lot of expenses that we incur because the buy-in for the brand is just simply to provide us with samples. Like I'll take it down to the, the core thing. It's just really samples, whether that be in the form of a giant wing or the form of the five by sixes that they, they provide us with. That's their pure buy-in to a showroom. The rest of that falls on the showroom owner, Nancy and myself, for, for example. Whenever we launch a new line, we tend to do a, a box out to our best clients that we think are going to resonate with that brand. So the boxes alone, we do a branded box. The box alone costs $400 for 50. Uh, and we send out, we, and we typically send out a hundred. And then additionally to that, it's all the marketing that we do, all of the things that we put together and all that. Well, my videographer and all of that, that costs money. When I look at that, at the end of the day, I'm doing all of this work and not being compensated for it unless something sells. And I'll take this one step further. Some brands will write to me and ask me, what are you doing to increase my sales? What are sales looking like? I'm not seeing enough sales from, from you and, and so on and so forth. And I would say, well, wait a minute. We now are starting to create a report of how many times we bring potential orders to a brand and we had to give up those potential orders. Those, those orders weren't fulfilled because that brand didn't have stock. And, you know, when you think about you're signing on to represent these brands, they're benefiting from your influence and your connections and all of that and not really compensating you until something is sold. I think there's something really wrong with that model and that model needs to be tweaked. And we're kind of figuring out how to tweak it. So what you both articulated is for small operations like yours, it seems as if, if there isn't 
and 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 we can call it a retainer we can call it what mm-hmm. whatever we want to i mean it's 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 the same kind of conversation that designers have about whether or not i charge a design fee or i charge by the hour right. Right. or I, right i mean right. it's it, it that's it's a great it's, way to look at it yeah yeah it's it, it's and very it's very similar go ahead nancy well i, I was going to say too i've had to you know, when I when I decided to open the showroom, I had made the decision not to design anymore because I really wanted to focus on the showroom. And now I understand why some of these showrooms that are not necessarily in a design center, like on La Cienega, they have an interior design arm to their business because you need that to fund your showroom. And so I'm finding, and, and that's why I launched my decorate business that, um, you know, a, a few months ago, is that I, I was approached by a friend to to decorate their Hamptons home. And, you know, those margins are better because you're, you're selling at a, at a retail price. And with my decorate business, um, you know, it, all of it has to come from my showroom line. So I'm supporting my showroom lines, getting to decorate, which I love. Um, but really it's, I'm now buying from my showroom and buying from my lines for my design work, which is a win-win, but now I'm back to that sort of straddling two things, but I do need I do need to have the second part of my business to fund the showroom business. Right. And interestingly, Nancy, what what you are now doing is what so many people in Europe are surprised we don't do routinely here. So you talk to the big English fabric houses. So many of their clients are in the UK, for example, they are designers with shops. So they are, yeah, right? Yeah. And they are putting together, yeah. whether they're putting together fabric books or they're putting a, together a collection for a designer who has a shop on the high street and anybody, designer or not, can walk in, can look at fabrics, can look at furniture, and, right? Exactly. And to that end, you know, I really sort of modeled myself after, you know, Peter Dunham, Hollywood at Home, and Joe Lucas Harbinger. Now, I, I, the piece totally. that I didn't want to do because of, you know, I, I didn't want to do the retail piece of it. And I'm not in a retail location. I'm, I'm in more of like a design, like a, there's sure. a tile shop near me and all that. Um, so I didn't want to do the retail piece, but I do love the fact that they have showrooms and they service designers. And then when I really started to see that, well, I, I, yeah, I'm, I'm, their interior design arm is certainly helping you know, and vice versa, you know, I mean, nothing makes me happier than finishing a project and seeing my client, the client love all the lines that I've sourced and I've curated and I've pulled together and they all complement each other so well. And so, you know, I, I feel really proud of what I've created with Evers Collective and now adding in the decorate piece of it just seems like a logical next step for it. And to just say like Nancy's doing that, the component that we've been secretly doing that helps fund the Summersell, uh, we call it Summersell to the Trade arm, which is the showroom, the digital showroom arm is we've launched a marketing company. So I do, a lot of people don't know it, but we do marketing for other brands especially for younger brands that are just coming into it uh, and not really knowing where to start. Uh, what do I need? What, you know, I need a photographer. I need to do content. I need to do, so people now hire us to, to do that for them. Uh, and we branch out even further to where we've got a designer. We've, we now represent a design firm through our marketing arm where we do their content and 
and stuff like that. So, and it feeds, it, it all feeds each other. So that design firm, when they get in queries for projects, which they've gotten some, not good, thank God, uh, they tend to go directly to Summercell and see how much of Summercell product can they pull into that project because essentially we sort of help them get that project. And, and, and then to add insult to injury, there's, there's whatever impact, higher interest rates, and this potential Federal Reserve trying to slow the economy, trying to cool things off, particularly in, in some of the markets where the two of you are, are doing business. And, and so I'm wondering, is that adding another layer of complication? And are you, are you feeling uh, the business start to cool off a, a little bit? We've, we've seen several of the big furniture companies have mm. to close their doors rather rather abru mm -hmm. abruptly and and that doesn't make anybody feel good about where we where we are and and obviously everybody knew business was going to have to cool down a bit from from 21 22 levels um but but what does that mean for the two of you what does it look like i'm not seeing so much of a business falling off of a cliff but i'm i'm seeing it taking some time to actually go from when it's sampled to when it's becoming a sale, which typically is about three months because we've got the data to see that, like when something goes out as a sample to when it, it, it turns into an actual order. Now that's just creeping up a little bit, it's taking a little bit longer. I would say the exact same thing. There is still building being done, remodels, new, I mean, the new builds out here in Silicon Valley still are, are insane. But I, I would agree with Anderson that the decision making is being stretched out longer and designers are presenting maybe more options than they had in the past to their design clients. And so it's taking a little bit longer to make decisions. You both use the word efficiency quite a bit. And, and are there other are there other areas of opportunity when it comes to efficiency? Are, are there other things that the industry should be doing better, should be doing more efficiently. I think we both ask ourselves, how can we be more of a resource for our interior designers? Because we both look at what we do as an extension of our interior design clients' offices. So Nancy and I are constantly talking about, should we have, like, who can we refer you know, whether it's a paper hanger, whether it's a, uh, a, mm -hmm. a work, a workroom, like how can we better collect that information? Cause we've got the privilege of working with so many designers. How can we collectively get that together and, and present it in a way that is mutually beneficial for all parties, uh, for our interior designers. I think that's what Nancy and I constantly are texting and talking about. How can we be more of a better extension of interior designers' offices other than just showing them pretty things? <laughs> yeah, and, and that, that is a big piece of it that we get asked a lot from designers is, is help on the on the workroom front, right? Like, could you actually help with your uh, resources make the drapery for me? Can I outsource that to you? Can you make the Can you make the custom pillows for us through through your workrooms? You know, so we have said yes to those those types of things, um, and um, we've learned along the way some things. Uh, we say yes to have worked. Others, I'm like, I won't say yes to that ever again. That was way too difficult. Um, so, but my nature is to say yes. 
you know, I really, from that service piece of me, I'm a yes person. I, I maybe should say no more often, but, um, but we've gotten in a couple pickles where it's like, oh gosh, we said yes to that. And this is really difficult to deliver on. So um, I want to make sure I'm thoughtful about evaluating those opportunities that, that come to us and whether they fit with this kind of services we, we, we want to provide. Got it. Okay. Thank you both for making the time to speak with us. It's, it's been a pleasure. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Dennis, for having us. Thank you, Dennis. This has been great. Really appreciate it. Okay, we're getting to the end of the show here, but before we go, we'd like to take a second to highlight anything going on in the industry that might have caught our eye. Fred? Uh, I got a survey in my inbox with a very interesting tagline, which says that the average American has two pieces of word art in their home. And when I say word art, I mean, you know, those little posters that say live, laugh, love, or it's wine o'clock and stuff like that. It's it's shockingly common. Uh, maybe not shocking, because I think it's it's become sort of a staple of Airbnbs uh, the world over. But I was just sort of surprised to see that statistic, and it made me realize, like, how much of a market for that stuff there really is and how little you see it in the pages of architectural digest but how much of it probably <laughs> probably uh is, is really out there in the real world and how much of it you see of it when you go to the atlanta market for example <laughs> there is a lot of word art to be had there and it is a huge market so we we can laugh if we want to but also i think people making word art are making a lot of money we so. gotta get someone on the show who who who's who, making a million exactly. off of live laugh love that's what who we want. is cornering the live laugh love market that we want to we want to have them on and and chat about it. Do you have a lot of word art in the in the house, Fred? Well, see, the funny thing is, I actually do. Okay, so I have okay. like hipster word art. So mm, like, I mean, oh, so it's, <laughs> so it's better, you see, Dennis, because right. it's cooler. Because yeah. the words are weird. <laughs> um, I'm a, I'm a huge fan of the artist Ed Ruscha, who's famous for painting. I actually have an Ed Ruscha tattoo, so I I, oh. I have I have a I have a print or two floating around here. So I'm I'm as guilty as as the next uh, next word art enthusiast. How about you? You got any word art? <laughs> And more importantly, anything else catching your eye? I'm uh, I'm low on the word art, but uh, but we were talking recently about brands doing fun collaborations, and one of the fun collaborations that caught my eye was actually a collaboration between Lori Weitzner, guest of the show in the past, uh, with with Lewis Miller, who everyone might not know Lewis Miller, but he is a, a brilliant florist and does these wonderful flower flashes around New York City. Uh, often at a street corner, he'll just fill a garbage can with this uh, incredible display of flowers and uh, and then sort of you you see it the next day and, and lots of people come by and take pictures and videos and, uh, and pose by it. But they got together. Lori had sort of really admired his work and, and as a result, they did some fun floral inspired fabrics and it's uh, and I think it's just another great example of sort of unexpected collaboration yeah his stuff is really cool you definitely see it on Instagram uh, for, I've never seen it in person unfortunately but I've definitely seen those I guess they're called fl- flower bombs is that what he calls them he calls them flower flashes flower <laughs> flashes okay gotcha. yes they're very cool and yeah as you said that's that's the kind of unexpected collabo that gets a mention at the in the 110th <laughs> minute of the Thursday show so keep at keep at it guys <laughs> Exactly. All right. That's all the time we have today. Thanks so much for listening. If you want to keep up with the latest news, browse job listings, or take a workshop, visit us online at businessofhome.com. If you want to get in touch with the show, write to us at podcast at businessofhome.com. 
This episode was produced by Fred Nicolaus and edited by Michael Castaneda. I'm Dennis Scully. Have a great weekend, and we'll be back with you on Monday.